Time has not always been measured. Not in the way that we measure it now, in years, months, days, hours, minutes, and even seconds. As we measure time with such precision, time becomes a non-renewable resource that must carefully be managed. We dare not waste time. Humans have created complex systems to extract as much as possible from every moment of every day. The unhappy byproduct is that we find ourselves with almost no room for savoring our joys and accomplishments. Though time cannot accelerate, the blind sprint in which we are caught makes us feel as though time goes by with increasing speed. Our lives are stuffed and stressed. Anxiety threatens to erode our souls. As we run faster and faster on the wheel of life, God's word whispers what can only seem absurd to us. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Be at peace. God lovingly and patiently moves at a sustainable pace and rhythm, but it is too slow for us. Yet the clock ticks on and time rushes past. We need to pause, to reflect, to listen to our patient God who lives and moves and breathes patience. This series will seek to redirect us toward the patient posture of our God, the God of the universe who is never anxious. So we begin our series, Practices of Patience, that will last uh, through the end of October. We're doing something new. Um, we'll try it out and see how it goes. Um, we recognize that people have questions, and sometimes there's not an opportunity to answer uh, questions, or you might feel awkward asking questions. So we're going to give you a chance to anonymously text the following phone number. It's up here. Um, any relevant questions um, that you have. So throughout the message, I'll put the phone number up again in a little while. Um, and you can text that, text us your, your questions, and then I'll respond at the end of the message to um, one or two of them, whichever seem most relevant. So that should be interesting. Well, let's stand together and read our scriptures as is our habit, if you're able to stand. That's wonderful. <sighs> we won't read the references, just the words. Ready, go. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
The word of the Lord. You can be seated. I find, and maybe you find, that this is a tough topic, patience. Let me illustrate by not saying anything. Hard for me and hard for you. (laughs) Every moment of every day in our world is filled with activity and stimulus. It's as if in our culture we are trying to fit too much activity in at too great a speed. And perhaps you've noticed this as well. Now, when I traveled to Northern Ireland, uh, Irishman Gary Bolton, he convinced me to rent a car while I was there. which I, I declined at first, but then he was quite convincing. And the reason, one of the reasons I declined is because that would mean me learning to drive on the left-hand side of the road um, from the right-hand side of the car, driving a manual transmission because there's nearly no automatics there. And I was only there for eight days, and I didn't want that kind of learning curve or regret. <laughs> and so, um, well, <laughs> more stressful still, the island of Ireland is too small for cars at high speeds. <laughs> it is a small island, and, um, and uh, most of the time I was driving, the roads seemed narrower than the car. That's what it felt like. Has anybody driven in the UK before or in Europe? Yeah, before, roads were built before <laughs> cars were invented. Oh, my goodness. It felt like as if I was having to, like, turn sideways to fit. <laughs> It was quite, a, quite an interesting <laughs> phenomenon. Um, you know, there's the hedge on my left and oncoming traffic on my right. And so I just, just sucked in my gut and it was just fine. <laughs> it, was just, it was just fine. <laughs> Speed, immediacy, so much to do. Felt like there was too much on those roads and there was too much trying to be accomplished. And I think our lives are a bit like that. It is, we could say, the spirit of the age, spirit of this age. So what is the spirit of the age? Paul writes to the church in Ephesus about the spirit of of their age. He's wanting them to recognize that there are bigger things that are driving them that Jesus is rescuing them from. He says this to the church in Ephesus. He says, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following, notice, the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. He's defining for them that there's an, there's an impulse that they, before Jesus, were, were drawn into and captivated by. And note the word, Paul says, you were dead. That there was death awaiting that spirit of the age. Notice he says that they were following the course of the world, that the, the world has a course that they were marked out on, and that was consuming them. And notice he says, passions of the flesh. In other words, that their flesh had become addicted to that reality, the things that the world was taking them into. I think that the spirit of our age, in part, could be defined this way. 
a frenetic preoccupation with ideas, technologies, and actions that will fix the world's problems. Guaranteed. <laughs> Guaranteed. I believe that this is sponsored and cultivated by the deceitful enemy of our souls. And the spirit of this age affects everyone and even gets into our very flesh and makes us desire it, even though it leads to our death. So I'll give you an example um, how the spirit of the age is affecting everything. Um, this last winter, there was one of our services, many of you were here, and we had like 15 people were signed up to be baptized, and then we had like 15 more that were baptized, and there was a bunch of people baptized in one service, and it was a, it was a move of God. And afterwards, I was thinking about it, and I was tempted to evaluate that move of God by the spirit of the age to try to reduce what had happened into a replicatable process so we could manufacture future experiences like that. The spirit of the age reduces everything into cause and effect. What is it, what is it I asked myself, that we did that caused such a response. The byproduct of the spirit of this age is impatience that masquerades as a desire to be effective. Quickly, the Lord corrected me. His mysterious work cannot be broken down into individual components that then can be reconfigured to create results. But we are living in this time. We are living in a time where the byproduct of such thinking is great impatience, great estimation that man has of itself, mankind has of itself, to be able to fix the world's problems. We are living at the, at the peak of modern inventions and technology and conventions. And as such, modern mankind feels that it can control the future. But rather than provide relief, this kind of control actually creates anxiety. And that's where we find ourselves. The epidemic of anxiety that is within our culture is the fruit of the spirit of the age leading the way, teaching men and women across our culture that they are indeed in charge of the future of the world. And of course, the byproduct is anxiety because we were never created to rule the world. Only God is in charge of the world. This impatience leads to some other symptoms that, um, that I notice. And maybe you'll see yourself in the following uh, symptoms. First of all, impatience tempts us to fight back because we think we're in control. We discover that we're not, that we have the better ideas, and we will fight back. <laughs> uh, Texan theologian Stanley Hauerwas, a theologian that I really like, he tells the story of his six-year-old cousin um, named Billy. And Billy was the son of a bricklayer. And at six years old, uh, Billy went to Sunday school, and he learned that Jesus was crucified. And he was not impressed, and he commented, John Wayne had been there, 
then SOBs wouldn't have got away with it. <laughs> and that tends to be how we think. Oh, we have a better solution. We can take care of that for you. Just remind all of us that the patience of God subjected Jesus to death. It wasn't as if God lost control or didn't have a better idea. Impatience tempts us to fight back. We don't need to fight back on the terms of the world. Rather, we reacquaint ourselves with this daring God who is so different, so patient, so loving, as we'll see. The second symptom, impatience tempts us to take control. I was writing this as I was walking through a cemetery this last week in our neighborhood. And um, I was reminded of what somebody said, Christianity is a curriculum that makes us comfortable with early death. That's what it does. Christianity is a curriculum that makes us comfortable with early death because we recognize that we have given ourselves over to the one who is in charge of life and death. And we give ourselves over to the one who has created resurrection out of death. And so we've become quite comfortable that if I, as Paul says, live or die, I am content either way because in either case I am with Christ. We are not in control. But impatience tempts us to take control. The spirit of the age tells us to take control, to be the one that is in charge of our life. The third symptom I notice, impatience tempts us to demonize people. Because of the pervasive myth of modernity, namely that we think we can control the outcomes of the world, when things do not go as we think they should, namely our comfort and success, we look for someone to blame. Certainly there's another Hitler or Joe Biden or Donald Trump that we can blame. Blame and demonizing people for me is an indication of our own impatience and lack of connection and awareness of this loving God who has not for one moment lost his ability to redeem a broken world or a broken life. Finally, impatience tempts us to wage war in ways that are not consistent with Jesus. Impatience tempts us to wage war in ways that are not consistent with Jesus. And this is why it is paramount and important. And I feel like God put on my heart to have us address patience from this perspective over the next um, weeks. Because as the world turns, as it does, and as we pivot towards another election cycle and all sorts of things that will tend to aggravate us, uh, first, if we recognize that ultimately it is the patience of God in which we are held, then perhaps our responses can be a bit more Christ-like, which require patience. Because what, what, there's nothing effective about loving your enemies. There's nothing effective about blessing those who persecute you. But there is something very faithful to the witness of Jesus that creates something that is much more beautiful than what the world has to offer. We have a singular mission that contradicts the spirit of the age, you and I as Jesus followers. We are witnesses of what God has done to rescue the world already in sending his son Jesus Christ to die, 
to resurrect, to ascend, to give us his Holy Spirit. Jacques Ellul, in a book he wrote in 1952 called Presence in the Modern World, he says this, I love this line, I think I've used it before, Christians must not act just like anyone, like just anyone. They have a role in the world that no one else can fill. As Christians, we are called to witness and embody a Christ-like response in a world that does not teach us that naturally. And so we are learning to do it. So as we go through the series, we'll be invited into practices of patience. We endeavor to live out such a courageous posture because it is our singular purpose to witness to the world a God that is loving and, as we'll see, paramountly or preeminently is patient. So if our Savior, Jesus, patiently suffered the cross as a means to salvation, our witness must be primarily be adorned with patience. So we'll take a closer look at patience through the lens of scriptures, and we'll take a look at the story that we find ourselves in. And to do so, I've constructed a biblical patience thought matrix, which sounds much more intimidating than what it is. We're just going to go through a few thoughts and then work back up and see where we arrive. The first is this, God is love. The scriptures reveal God as love. It is, uses agape as the Greek word there, which is others-oriented. It is real love. It is a never-giving-up kind of love. And John writes to the other church in 1 John. He says it a couple of places, but in verse 8 of chapter 4, whoever does not love does not know, uh, know God for, let's read it together, God is love. The way that the scriptures define God in part is to say that God is love. Number two, the scriptures define what love is and is defined as, first of all, patient. Love is patient, which points to God. Paul defines what love is. He explains it. Notice what the first attribute of love is. He is writing to the church in Corinth a a, a real mess of people that probably if we investigate further enough, for, or close enough, we'd say, oh, that's a bit like us. They were wildly sexually immoral. They didn't know how to get along. They formed cliques. They took advantage of one another. I mean, they were just a real mess of people. And he's trying to teach them this way of the, to, to how they are to orient and, and live among themselves. And he says the highest is these three remain. He says, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And he wants them to understand love, and then he defines it. And so these verses define. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. That is a phrase that American Christians need to extract and put on their fridge. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that Paul, as Paul describes love as, first of all, patient, that the rest of verses 4 through 7 is further defining what patience is. <laughs> this is what it looks like. It is kind. Patience is not envious. Patience is not boastful. Patience is not arrogant. It is not rude. It cannot insist on its own way. Patience is not irritable, is not resentful, does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Patience, it's bearing all things. It's believing all things. It's hoping all things. It's enduring all things. Verses 
So God is love. Paul defines what love is. It's first of all, patient. The third thought for us as we work our way through, this is how we know that God loves us. We go back to 1 John 4 and we read some of the surrounding verses. How do we know that God loves us? Christ Jesus patiently died for us. In 1 John 4, verses 9 through 10, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so God, in his amazing wisdom that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, looks like foolishness in the eyes of the world, made his patient love glaringly obvious by sending his son to patiently die a cruel death at the hands of the Romans. He sacrificed himself so that we might know his love. Jesus said, uh, I will be lifted up unto all men that they might know me. He's lifted up so that we might understand the love of God. You and I, we would come up with different ideas about how God's love could be represented to us, but God perhaps wanted us to know that primarily the foolishness is actually God's patience with the world, his power to take a cruel and harsh and crass thing like a cross and make it beautiful, testifies to his patience with a broken world. So, moving on down through, God is love. Love is patient. We know that God's patient love for us because Jesus patiently died on the cross for our sins. This is how we come to know this love of God. The fourth thought on our matrix here is our primary identity is as a witness to God's love in Christ. Our primary identity is as a witness to God's love in Christ. Jesus, speaking to his followers and would-be followers, and I believe to us, he defines their role in the world in an astounding fashion. He says this, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled. And then he says to his followers, would-be followers, and to us, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. I just want to remind you or maybe introduce you to this idea that Jesus was not talking to powerful business leaders. He was not talking to politicians of the day. He was not talking to people who had a, you know, a store of weapons that enabled them to be able to have some influence in the world, but rather he was talking to peasants. He was talking to working class people who had little or no ability to affect the trajectory of the world according to the ways that we think the world changes. Power, money, political position, um, etc. And he says, you, you powerless people are the salt of the earth. And in that, he's using an illustration, obviously. Salt in the, that world at that time was mainly a preservative. It preserved things. You've had salted meat, like jerky. If you salt the jerky in October after you get the deer on your hunt, then you can eat it in March. If you don't salt it, you won't be able to eat it in November. <laughs> oh, that stink. <laughs> Rotting meat is, is its own thing. We are... We are, are, one of our primary identifiers as followers of Jesus is the salt of the earth. We preserve something. 
The love of God invades our lives and we come to know that God has inaugurated a new kingship under the Lord Jesus. And from that resource of love, we preserve the world by reenacting this kinds of patience, which ultimately is love. We do not, are not known by our demanding our own way. Rather, we believe all things, we hope in all things, we patiently witness and testify to the reality of a God who has already healed the world in Jesus Christ. We preserve that, and I would suggest preeminently for us at this time in our lives through patience, which is so odd to the world that is predicated upon impatience and the subsequent anger and control, etc. Secondly, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, which I would just suggest that means that we reflect the source you and I, as the light of the world, as followers of Jesus, we point to God's love and Christ crucified over and over again. With our lives, with our words, with our actions, we illuminate the love of God in Christ, which is preeminently patient. In the cross, God used the most inefficient means to achieve the ends of salvation, as end of salvation. And so as children of the light, as Paul calls us in Ephesians, we point to Jesus' amazing love over and over again. And it will over and over look like this, this radical patience, this patience that doesn't seem to fit. Because the world seems like it's going to hell. And there are the Christians walking in the patient love of God with hope undeterred. Amen. As we work our way through our thought matrix, if we are to be witnesses, how will others know about true love, which we define as, first of all, patience, or the scripture defined as patience? If we witness as salt by being patient and light reflecting back to the source of patience, Jesus' death and resurrection then we have the possibility of helping others to know about this love of God. Conversely, if we do not reenact patience, we are giving a witness of an antichrist. Because if God is love, and love is first of all patient, and then the Christian witness in the world is anger and reaction and demanding our own way, and trying to control the masses, that is against the way that Christ has taught us. And the scriptures use a word for that, antichrist. We live in the reality of God's victory. And so we decidedly choose to refuse to be drawn into culture wars, rather we choose to exhibit patience through the convulsions of the world. Hmm. Anybody else struck how hard that is? I'll just remind you, as we talked about at the beginning, some of why that is so difficult for us is because we are saturated in a culture that, that, uh, that makes us live as if we are in control. And of course, when you feel like you lose that sense of control, it is irritating and you want to grab onto it again. So if you have found yourself acting in such ways, you're not alone at all. 
And it is the spirit of the age that Jesus is inviting us, is inviting us to counteract by simply looking to Jesus again. Hmm. Patience will then point to true love. Alan Kreider wrote a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, and it's, it's, it's a very good book. And there's many good things in it, and we'll probably draw some out in the, um, the days and weeks to come. He, he notes that in the early church that there is not one major treatise or essay on evangelism, and yet the church grew exponentially. But they were, there was not like pastors teaching people, this is how you evangelize. This is how you reach out to the lost. There was nothing of that. But there were two major treatises on patience in the early church. And he suggests that the, the environment of the early church under the oppression of the Roman Empire and the oppression of religious systems, that as they reenacted the way of Jesus and were patient, it drew people into this kind of community which was acting very differently than the world around them and in an attractive way, and that's why the early church grew. And I wonder about us. I think that could be us. But he says, patience is not in a hurry. Patient Christians live at the pace given by God, accepting incompleteness and waiting. <laughs> It's like what every Western modern person um, cannot stand. <laughs> Incompleteness in waiting. So fascinating, though. Like, which of us is, there's all things are complete in our lives now. And yet we live with this chronic sense that it should be. Which of us does not have to wait and wait and wait and yet, there's something about our culture that demands that we shouldn't have to or that we should be irritable about that. And that's just the reality of it. We'll talk at the end of the month about God working through generations, that his, his sight line or his arc of how he's working is not framed within any of our lifetimes, but rather it's framed over multiple generations. And when we get a sense of that kind of arc, we have much more ability to accept our bit within the story of his restoration and redemption, even if there's cost or challenge to us that doesn't seem um, or that isn't what we would want it to be. Okay. I want to be clear about something, and probably I would guess that somebody has texted this already. To be clear, patience does not mean non-action. But godly patience seeks to take the right kind of action. We take on the actions of Jesus and seek to follow the commands of Jesus. And those are what dictate our responses. So patience is not the same as passivity. But rather, we are called to walk very discerningly in the ways of Jesus that will require us to be patient because the ways of Jesus are always the ways of Love. Okay. <laughs> All right. Just one thing to go away today as a point of application to begin or to continue practicing this. And that would be this. For one week, try starting your day with 10 minutes, 10 minutes of prayer 
and 15 minutes of Bible reading. If you need a Bible reading plan, there's uh, our Abide reading plan, which lasts up until Christmas. You can grab it at either exit on the way out, and I'll tell you what to read each day and um, give you some thoughts about how to engage with the scriptures. But 10 minutes of prayer, 15 minutes of Bible reading.